Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you for this reminder of creation and our recreation back to the image of God. We thank you for this reminder that we can't make ourselves holy. It is only God that can make us holy and help us to rest in that assurance on this Sabbath. Bless us, we pray, as we tackle a difficult topic, forgiveness. Help us, we pray, hide me behind the cross. May Jesus be uplifted and Christ be seen. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Simon Wiesenthal was a Jew who lived through the Holocaust in Western Europe and in his book entitled The Sunflower, he tells the story of how he was ushered into a hospital room by a nurse. In the room, sitting on the bed, was a patient whose head was wrapped in bandages. You could only see cutouts for his eyes and his nose and his mouth. And Simon was told to sit down, and the man began to speak. And the man said, I know that you are a Jew. He said, I used to be a SS soldier, and I killed many Jews in cold-blooded genocide. He told the story of how he commanded his men to surround this building filled with men, women, and children, and they were told to torch the building, and he had his soldiers stand around for any individual that would dare come out of that building to be gunned down in cold blood. And as that man is sitting on the bed, he says, I feel guilty. This thing is destroying my life. And he said, I need forgiveness. And he said, can you forgive me? Can you forgive me for what I've done to your people? Can you forgive What's Simon going to do? He sat there in silence, and he made this decision. He stood up without saying a word and walked out of the room. That moment haunted him for years, and he asked multiple people, rabbis, people that he respected, did I do the right thing for walking out on that man. And the majority of people told him, Simon, absolutely, you did the right thing. That man did not deserve your forgiveness. Have you been hurt? Have you had individuals cut you deeply? Maybe they said things about you that were untrue. Maybe they destroyed your reputation. Maybe they have done things to you that have just hurt you so deeply and wounded you that you thought to yourself, this person does not warrant my forgiveness. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight, and that's the words of Peter to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Open your Bibles there to that relational chapter. Anytime we're having a a rift with somebody, we always say, Go to Matthew 18, right? So here it is, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21. Peter is asking Jesus this question about forgiveness. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now in Hebrew tradition, seven was the number that you were to forgive your brother. And here, Peter is following in that tradition, and he thought he was being quite generous, and look at Jesus' answer, and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 490, interesting, that's how long Jesus gave in the 70-week prophecy, 490 years. Now, he's not giving a limit to 490, but you get the idea. And then Jesus tells this story, and it's familiar. A king 
and a servant. And the servant owes the king an exorbitant amount of money, an amount of money that he would never be able to repay. Imagine if you owed someone a billion dollars. There is no way to repay that. And finally, the king says, look, I'll forgive you. And you know the story. The man goes from that experience and goes out and physically grabs someone by the throat that owes him one dollar and says, look, pay me or else. The king hears about it and says, you wicked servant, you should have forgiven your fellow servant. Now, I'd like to unpack this with you because the Bible is indicating that the unforgiveness of the wicked servant results in the loss of his own forgiveness. Do you see that in that story? Also, something interesting in this story is that the Bible presents forgiveness in a triad. In other words, in a unit of three. Typically, we think of forgiveness in terms of a unit of two, the person that hurts me and me. But Jesus expands forgiveness to not just the person that has wounded you, but also God in the picture as well. So anytime you think about forgiveness, it is not just you and the other person. It is God, me, and those who hurt me. And according to this story, these entities are what we call interrelated or interconnected or interdependent. I'm running out of synonyms here. In other words, the relationship of the one impacts the relationship of the other. When you cut off forgiveness to your brother, it affects another relationship. Now, back in the day, when we had these Christmas lights in what we called a series circuit or a daisy chain, you remember that? And when one light went out, what happened? They all went out. So think of forgiveness as a series circuit. When one light goes out, they all go out. In other words, forgiveness is to flow from God to me to those who hurt me. An interesting thing about this relationship is that there is a clear hierarchy between the king and the servant. The king is up here, the servant is down here, but in the relationship with the servant, the Bible says this is a fellow servant. He's a peer. So we have the vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with our brother and sister. And the Bible is indicating that when we receive forgiveness from God, that forgiveness is to flow. But if it doesn't flow, that forgiveness from God gets cut off and we lose our forgiveness. What does it say in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts, right? As we forgive our debtors, vertical, horizontal. That's the way that forgiveness works. Now, how do we do this? especially when we've been cut so deeply. You ever been hurt so deeply that you want to hang on to that? And you're like, no way. I'm going to hold on to this to the day that I die. In Cuba, during the Batista Revolution, Priscilla Martinez watched her son be executed right in front of her. 13 years old. Before they cut him down like a dog in front of her, 
They allowed her to embrace her son. So as she hugged him, he whispered in her ear. He said, Mom, forgive them. Forgive them. Or they will be the victors. She said, he said, Mom, forgive them. Or they're going to win. And he went off and was executed right before her. And she hung on to that for years. She couldn't forgive. And for those of you that are parents, I think one of the hardest things that we can ever imagine is watching our children suffer in front of us. We would much rather suffer. Isn't that right? And she held on to that, the hate and the bitterness, that, 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 that she, the revenge that she had in her heart for those people that would dare touch her son. And she says this, I only forgave when I saw how destructive my hate was, how it consumed my energies and crippled my friendships and disabled any good that I wanted to do. I wanted to be free from the prison that I had erected in my life. I saw finally the truth of my son's last words, that when we return hatred to those who hate us, we fall into playing their game according to their rules and doing them the great favor of hurting ourselves. Jesus wants us to forgive. Because if we don't, it destroys us. And we're letting them win. I had the privilege of going to Robben Island in South Africa. It was the island where Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison. I got to look into the room where that man basically rotted in jail for almost 30 years. Later on, in a revolution, his party got power. And everyone was expecting a bloodbath, a revolution. We're going to get them back. And Nelson Mandela had a special seat reserved at his inauguration, and it was for his jailer. Nelson Mandela said this, the first lesson is forgiveness. You must not allow hate to fester in your brain. You can never allow hatred and bitterness to rent rent space in your head. Forgiveness. Dr. Kim was living during a time of North and South Korean controversy and war. He was living near the border. A group of North Korean communists came down into his village and killed his entire family. Him and his daughter were the only ones that were left. Later on, he had the opportunity to go back and visit the person that had gunned down his family. Knocked on the door. They opened it. And he said, you killed my family, but I forgive you. People were amazed. A few months later, they accepted Christ as their Savior. And they established a church in that community. Forgiveness is to flow from God to me to those who hurt me. The reason the wicked servant was not able to forgive his fellow servant was that he did not fully recognize the magnitude of the forgiveness of that king. And so this evening, I want us to focus what type of forgiveness does God offer you and me? Because if we fully appreciate that reality of how wretched I am in the eyes of God. Has God been merciful to you? Has he given you chance after chance after chance 
opportunity after opportunity. Look, I would have given up on me. But he didn't. Praise his name. And if we fully realize that, the power of God can enable us to pass that type of forgiveness on. We can't do it ourselves. It's a miracle of grace. Mark chapter 2, our first vignette into the type of forgiveness that God gives us, and it's in the healing of the paralytic. You remember this story? Four friends bring this man to Jesus. They tear down a roof, and they lower this man before Jesus. And before healing this paralytic, Jesus says these words in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And you remember the story. The Pharisees and the scribes are sitting around and saying, look, that's blasphemy. How can this man forgive sins? Only God can do this. Now, it's interesting the order that Jesus does this. Jesus forgives the man and then says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He could have done it in the reverse order, but he does the forgiveness first. Now, there's two miracles that are evident in this passage. The miracle of forgiveness and the miracle of healing the paralytic. One is invisible, and the other is visible. And what Jesus does is that he links the two together. If you read the account, he says that you may know that I have the power to forgive sin. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. In other words, the evidence of the second miracle is validation that the first miracle has taken place as well. Are you following me, yes or no? So the the scribes and Pharisees are like, look, how can you forgive sin? And Jesus says, look, just so you know that this invisible miracle has taken place, I'm going to give you a visible one. Rise, take up your bed and walk. In other words, that just authenticated the reality of the first miracle. Now look, There's something about the second miracle that we cannot miss. Let's pick it up here in verse 10. Mark chapter 2 and verse 10. Here's the clincher where Jesus links the two miracles. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say unto you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And the next word is key, verse 12, immediately. Do you see that? It wasn't five minutes. It wasn't 10 minutes. As Jesus said those words, the miracle of physical restoration took place immediately. Which means that the miracle of forgiveness was also what? Immediate. You ever do something so bad, and the person that you go to ask for forgiveness wants to make you suffer a little bit? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's in marriage. (laughs) We'll talk about that. (laughs) You've done something so hurtful, the other person's like, Ah, are you really sorry? I I, I didn't hear that right in your intonation of your voice. It it sounded a little bit tentative. Can can you say that again? And and you're like, I'm really sorry. And they're like, "Mm, let me think about that. And there's a term that we use. We put them in the doghouse. You know what I'm talking about? Make them sleep on the couch that night. We put them in a provisional, probationary state just so that they suffer enough, so that they can really feel how much they have hurt me. And we put them there until they really, really show how sorry they are. And then, after we made them suffer enough, we allowed them into the inner sanctum 
of our forgiveness because they've earned it. We as human beings, we don't give instantaneous forgiveness. We give delayed forgiveness. Isn't that right? Provisional forgiveness. There was a king that went to the pope to ask for forgiveness. And the pope made him stand outside barefoot for three days. And then he said, come on in. Provisional forgiveness. What type of forgiveness does God give us? Immediate. Now, it's hard to believe that sometimes because we've done some terrible things. You ever done something and you're like, this is really bad. This, this really crosses the line. And, and we go to God and say, Lord, please forgive me. And then we're like, just so you didn't forget, please forgive me. Please forgive. And we ask him maybe a hundred times just to make sure that he got it right. Because it was so bad. We put ourselves in the doghouse. And the beauty of forgiveness is that it's always a yes prayer. Do you believe that? I can't tell you how many times I've turned to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I turn there and I'm like, oh, praise God. It's still there. <laughs> Amen. And you kneel by your bed and I said, Lord, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I claim this promise today. And you can get off your knees right there. And regardless of the way that you may or may not feel, it's not based on feeling. It's based on fact, the fact of scripture. It's immediate. Not provisional. You're not in the doghouse. You don't have to grovel and beg for forgiveness for five minutes, for 10 minutes. For five years, instant. And it's always yes. Isn't that beautiful? We need to forgive ourselves. Because God always says yes. And it's always immediate. Isn't that beautiful? Our high calling, page 48. Through the righteousness of Christ, we shall stand before God, pardoned as though we had never sinned. Do you believe that? You get off your knees after quoting 1 John 1, 9, and you say, Lord, I don't feel it, but I believe it by faith. You don't see me. You see the righteousness of Christ. And it's just like that. Isn't God good? Isn't he gracious? Oh, we are so undeserving. And God says, look, the way I forgive you, it's undeserved. And I want you to pass that on to your brother or your sister or your husband or your wife or your father or your mother. Our second vignette in appreciating the forgiveness of God. Luke chapter 23. Turn your Bibles there. One of the last words of Jesus on the cross. Luke chapter 23. In verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. This is one of the seven last pronouncements that Jesus makes on the cross Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who are they? You'll see this 
third person plural pronoun. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, this applies to all of us in application because we're all guilty of nailing Jesus on the cross. But there's an immediate context to this. There's the first application of this passage. And we get a clue in the second part of verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and they divided his garments and cast lots. Do you see that? In other words, whoever they are, the first application is those that are dividing his garments and casting lots. We cross-reference this with the book of John, John chapter 19 and verse 23. I'll read it here for the sake of time. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part. So the soldiers are the ones that are dividing his garments. And the first application of this passage is Jesus is praying for the soldiers. Are you following me in this passage? For they are the ones that are crucifying Jesus and parting his garments and casting lots. Now it's interesting because they made four parts to each soldier a part. How many soldiers are there then? There's four. There's four soldiers. Now the question is, why? Why four, four soldiers? The, the Romans had perfected the art and the craft of crucifixion. And there's a reason why there are four. You think about it, logistically. Do you think a person is going to willingly be crucified? No. So you imagine these four brute, muscular, hardened soldiers with necks like tree trunks, bulging biceps with veins sticking out. And these guys have maybe done a thousand crucifixions. They're good. And you don't get people that look like me to do a crucifixion. (laughs) With all due respect, these guys are big. In other words, they're going to hold this criminal down, quote unquote. Why four? One to get the legs. One for one arm, one for the other arm, and one to drive the nails. So you imagine this. But Jesus is inviting. He's a lamb led to the slaughter. He's laying down willingly, but they're still holding him down just to make sure. You imagine these big, buff soldiers with those unholy hands putting them on the holy son of God. And one driving the nails. Do you see it? There's another clue in this passage. In the New American Standard Bible, Luke chapter 23, verse 24 says, but Jesus was saying, and it gets the Greek language the most accurately, because the Greek tense is very specific. The actual Greek tense, the NASB gets it right. It's the present sense tense, which means that it's a continuation. There's a difference between, and but Jesus said, but Jesus was saying. You following me? In other words, something is happening while he is saying. And this is what the NASB says, and this is spot on with the Greek language. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Does that make a difference? But Jesus was saying, while they are doing something, what are they doing? They are crucifying him. So you get a picture as to what's happening in this verse. While these four soldiers are holding the Son of God down, And in the midst of the crucifixion, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what's happening. One of my friends at the seminary asked me the question, David, what do you get? when you squeeze God 
I was like, what kind of question is that, brother? I said, I need to study Greek. I don't have time for this. He said, no, 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 no. What do you get when you squeeze God? He said, Jesus. What do you get when you squeeze me or you? You ever been with somebody and they're in an accident and they're squeezed and all kinds of four-letter words pop out? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, you're like, whoa, this person was just squeezed. This is the most, this is the most stressful time in the earthly life of the Son of God. He's bearing the sins of the whole world. He's being literally tortured, real time. And what comes out of his mouth? Forgiveness. Now you think about that. You think about the implications of that. Not after they did it, while they are doing it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In other words, the application is this. While we are in the midst of hurting the Son of God in our sin, we're told every time we sin, we're wounding the Son of God afresh. When we are in the very act of sin, you know what the heart of God is bleeding? It's bleeding forgiveness. That's what this text is telling us. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have to ask for forgiveness. We do. But look at the posture and the heart of God. This is not a God that is reluctant to forgive. This is the nature of God. In other words, while we are crucifying Jesus afresh a thousand times over with our addictions, with, with our, our sin and, and our depravity, and we're doing it over and over and over again, the heart of God is not judgment It's not, I'm going to zap you and I'm going to destroy you. How can you do this to me? The heart of God is, while we're in the very act of hurting him with our sin, the heart of God is, I'm longing to forgive you. That's the picture of the heart of God. Can you say hallelujah and praise the Lord? Sometimes we get this picture of God, oh, you know, if I just grovel enough, if I just pay enough penance and, and all these types of things, then he will finally forgive me. That's not the heart of God at all. His posture, the moment we go into sin, is, I want to forgive. And we've been fed a lie about God. Satan's propaganda. That God is like us. Praise God that he's not. Isn't God beautiful? As they're nailing those spikes into his hand, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Mm, Praise the Lord. And God says, the same type of forgiveness that I gave to you I want you to pass on. Oh, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Desire of Ages says this and confirms. Desire of Ages, page 744. While the soldiers are doing their fearful work, Jesus prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But look at the heart of God. He's looking for a way to absolve these soldiers. You see that? He's like, he longs to forgive. And he's looking for any way to grant them forgiveness. And he's like, oh, what, what, what can I do that will absolve them of the, what they're doing? I mean, this is a heinous act to kill the Son of God. And he's looking for a way. And he's like, ah, they don't know. Do You see that? They don't know. In other words, the clause that Jesus is looking for is not a clause for condemnation and for prosecution. He's like, ah, what is it? Oh, 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 ignorance. 
Ignorance. These are Roman soldiers. They don't know. They haven't been given the opportunities of the Jewish people. They're pagans. They're, they've been grown up in this culture. They don't know. They're just executioners. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know. That's the heart of God. Not only in the midst of hurting the Son of God does he long to forgive. But his mind is like, look, what is the way that I can absolve them? Praise his name. Sometimes we think that God is out to get us, that he's the prosecution, that he's trying to destroy us and our reputation. But God is up there. He's like, look, we got to figure out a way to absolve them. Let's look for any way that we can do this to find a way. And in this case, they don't know. They don't know. I've thought about this before. <sighs> There's people that have hurt me, and uh, I've had to, to recognize sometimes they don't know, right? <laughs> they don't know any better. Matter of fact, they only know half the truth. They don't know the circumstances and the events and the experience. They're passing judgment on something that they have half of the facts. They don't know. And when I recognize that, and when I look at Jesus and how he approaches me, I'm like, Lord, help me to forgive. Help me to forgive. But there's something else in this passage. Jesus doesn't say, I forgive you. You see that? Now, he could have done that. But he says, Father, forgive them. In other words, you have the expansion from just two to three. It's the Father, the Son, and the soldiers. There's something happening here. Now, look. I have two children. And I can't think of something that would uh, just destroy me more than to watch my son or my daughter be tortured right in front of me. You following me? Yes. I mean, that would, that would be unbearable. I mean, I'd much rather be tortured um, than to watch my son or daughter be tortured by somebody else in front of me. Do you think that there's something happening in the heart of the Father in this moment? Yeah. Look, if you don't feel any anger, if your son and daughter is being tortured in front of you, something's wrong. You following me? It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, another day. No way. The very fact that there's anger means that there's love. So, so in this moment... Do you think that there's some emotion in the heart of the, of, of the Father? Absolutely. Absolutely. How dare you touch one hair of my son? And in that moment, in other words, the relationship between the Father and the soldiers is not good. Because the soldiers are torturing the son. And in that moment, Jesus steps in and says, Father, forgive them. For they don't know. What do we call that? We call that advocacy. Advocacy. In other words, when you step in and you say, look, I'm going to defend this individual. We call that advocacy or intercession. So in this moment at the cross... As the soldiers are nailing these spikes into the hands of the Son of God, you see Jesus starting the transition from the Lamb to the High Priest. Do you see that? I'm not saying it's happened, but he's already fulfilling that role of advocacy. Advocacy. But this is the mind-blowing thing. The victim becomes the advocate. The victim becomes the advocate. The person 
that we have hurt the most in the entire universe, and that's the Son of God, becomes our greatest advocate. Can you say praise his name? While Jesus is being tortured by the soldiers, Jesus becomes our advocate. Praise his name. 1 John 2 verse 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What type of forgiveness does God give us? First of all, it's immediate. The moment that you ask for forgiveness, you have it. Regardless of the way that you may or may not feel. And you can believe it. You can believe it, friends. Regardless of your emotions, when you get up off your knees and you say, Lord, forgive me. And look, we've done some terrible things. We have things that we would blush with embarrassment. We'd probably leave the room if they were flashed on the screen right now. But God says, I forgive you. And I praise God that in the millennium, that's one incentive to be there at the millennium. Because look, if I don't make it, and uh, you're like, why is David Shin not there? He was at 3ABN fall camp meeting. You know, you're walking around, you're like, oh, you know, on the sea of glass, where's David Chin? He's not here. It's like, I wonder why. You roll the tape, and it's like, oh, that's why. But praise God, when we make it, not if we make it, got to speak by faith, amen? When we make it, and you're walking on the sea of glass, and someone comes up to me and says, look, I want to roll the tape on you. They go to roll the tape. And it says, it's been deleted. Oh, praise God. Cut Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's the way that forgiveness works. Hallelujah. It's been deleted. In other words, there's no record. It's been tossed into the depths of the sea. And it's like, God's like, look, I don't remember. Praise God that he has selective memory. And that's the way that forgiveness works. He looks at you. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Don't worry about what God thinks of you. You need to think about what God thinks of Christ and his righteousness. Because when you ask for forgiveness, God says, look, all I see is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the forgiveness that God offers. And every time we sin, God says, look, I forgive you and it's immediate. Now, there's a tension there. 1 John 1, 9, Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. In other words, he holds up the ideal to keep you from falling. Forgiveness on one end, grace to keep you from falling on the other end. But there's grace in the journey. Look, when my son was born and he was learning how to walk, it was quite the sight stumbling around. Now, I didn't spank him when he fell. Can you imagine? It's like, what's wrong with you? You were just born. (laughs) You know, sometimes we think that we're worse than God. But as we mature and grow in grace, we get to the place where if we fall... It's an anomaly. I remember I was walking in graduate school in Michigan. I was walking across, and I didn't see this sheet of ice while all these undergrads were around me, and it was a glorious fall. (laughs) It was actually quite clumsy. Groveling around, books everywhere. And, of course, I acted like it didn't hurt. And people are like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. (laughs) I go off to the bathroom. I'm like, ooh, But that's an anomaly. I don't say I have my daily fall. I didn't fall today. And it's the same way in our spiritual experience. 
as we come to Christ. I used to think that once I got baptized, God came down with an eraser and got rid of all those neural pathways from my past, but it doesn't work like that. He gives you strength to build new ones. But as you're building those new ones, there's grace. I remember when I was learning how to drive a stick shift car. Oh, Lord help me. It was in New England. I was selling books. The transmission on my automatic station wagon went out, and the farmer gave me a stick shift car. I thought I was getting whiplash. (laughs) And so, on that fateful day, the union literature evangelist director was assigned to go with me. (laughs) And so I'm going up this hill in fifth gear. And I remember him, he was a little bit heavy set. I still remember him in my, my mind's eye. He was over there, and he looked like he was having convulsions. <laughs> and we're going up this hill, and he says, fourth gear. Put up fourth gear. Too slow. Third gear. And this man is like... <laughs> second gear. First gear. I was going up this hill in first gear. I go to make a left-hand turn. I stall. And he says, this is very dangerous. And I said, I know. (laughs) Popped the clutch, went around. The next day at a group canvas, he he did a skit, and it was on me. (laughs) I was absolutely mortified. (laughs) But now, I don't mean to be proud. But I'm pretty good. (laughs) I can be on a hill in San Francisco at a traffic light. I don't mean to brag, but I don't need no emergency brake. I bring that clutch to friction point, and it's smooth like butter. I can be on the phone eating a banana and shifting. What has happened? It's called neuroplasticity. Can you imagine? And it's a gift. It's a double-edged sword. Can you imagine every time you got in your car, you're like, how do I do this? Praise God for the way that our minds work. But as we come to Christ, we have all those old neural pathways. And as we're learning this thing, not because God's grace isn't there, as we're learning this thing, we fall. But God's grace is there. A righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. But as we learn the science of salvation, and as we build those new neural pathways, the book Desire of Ages tells us that when we are obeying him and walking with Christ by the grace of Christ, and and we build those new neural pathways, that we can come to the place where sin becomes hateful to us. And by obeying him, we are but following our own impulses. Do you have things in your life that you used to hate that you now love? Praise his name. Things that you used to love that you now hate. But there's grace in the journey. And forgiveness is a gift of God. And God says, look, I've forgiven you a thousand times. As you're figuring this thing out, you get up, you fall down. You get up, you fall down. And God says, look, I long to forgive And I'm forgiving you, I'm forgiving you, I'm forgiving you, and it's instant. And God says, look, you've been touched by my grace. I want you to pass that on. Amen. So that they can feel the love that I've given you. Corey Tem Boom tells the story of how she was at Ravensbrock with her sister. The torture of the concentration camps in Western Europe. They were hiding Jews and they got caught. Her and her sister were there. Her sister died in Ravensbrück. And she talks about 
how her sister was touched by the love of God, would be giving her food away, was praying for the soldiers. And, and Cory Ten Boom tells the story about how the bitterness and the anger of that moment of what had happened to her sister was eating up her life. And she finally experienced the grace of God, was going through Western Europe post-war, talking about forgiveness. After one of this, her sermons, a tall gentleman walked up to her. And she recognized him instantly. He was an SS soldier that had been at Ravensbrück. And she says that as she saw him, there was these emotions of anger, of bitterness and resentment and hatred that were welling up in her soul as she looked at this man. All the memories of what had happened to her sister came vividly to her mind. And the man walked up to her, not recognizing who she was, and said, Miss Temboom, I'm so thankful for your message on forgiveness and extended his hand. And she says, I didn't want to shake it. But she remembered how forgiveness needed to flow. And by faith, not feeling, she extended her hand and grasped the hand of that former SS soldier. And she says that the feelings of love flowed from her hands to her heart after she had acted by faith. She says, we never touch the ocean of God's love so much as when we love our enemies. It is a joy to accept forgiveness, but it is almost a greater joy to give forgiveness. And we can pray the prayer of Miss Temboom. Jesus, I cannot forgive. Give me your forgiveness. Is that your desire today? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.